earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today on A Word from the Word. Today is part three in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. And just as a quick refresher, our journey through the book of Acts is a thematic journey. In other words, we're tracking the lives of the apostles and Christ followers and observing them as they manifest resurrection power. I also shared last time that Acts is an alive book. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and living or acting powerfully in and through the post-resurrection followers of Jesus. And please realize, friends, that there's no expiration date on the book of Acts, no expiration date on the active working of the Holy Spirit. Well, friends, I'm calling today's teaching, Resistance is Futile. And I'd like to begin with a true story that occurred at Princeton Theological Seminary many years back. Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, once renowned professor, gained international recognition as a scholar and defender of our historic Christian faith, having mastered 45 languages and dialects. One day he was sitting in Miller Chapel because one of his former students, 12 years after his graduation, was invited back to preach. At the close of the chapel service, old Dick Wilson, as he came to be known, went up to his former student, extended a handshake, and said, If you come back again, son, I won't come to hear you preach. I only come once. I'm glad to see you're a big godder. When my students come back, I come once to determine if they're big godders or little godders. Then I'll know what their ministry will be. Well, the student, a little perplexed, asked Dr. Wilson to please elaborate. So Wilson continues, Well, son, some people have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. Their God doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, so I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You, son, have a great God, and he'll bless your ministry. After a brief pause, Dr. Wilson smiled and said, God bless you. He then turned and walked out. Friends, I don't know if you're able to read between the lines, but in light of our selective journey through Acts, I'm curious, what do you think might be the key difference between Dr. Wilson's big God and little God concepts? And let me just say before you answer, how we answer that question will have profound implications on how we view and live out our life as Christ followers. So let me ask again, what do you think might be the key difference between between Dr. Wilson's Big God and Little God concepts. A one-word answer will suffice. 
Well, I won't keep you in suspense. The answer is power. Yep, it really boils down to a matter of power. And friends, why I said our answer to that question will have profound implications on how we view and live out our Christian lives is simply this. Are we big godders or are we little godders? You see, friends, well-meaning Christians mistakenly declare, and maybe you've heard your fellow Christians say this, God can do anything. That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? And to back us up, we've got these neat verses like Genesis 18:14. Is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? And Matthew 19:26. With God all things are possible. But you see, friends, the real question is not, can God do anything? That question is far too nebulous. It has the appearance of sounding really spiritual. The real question, and the one we all have to come to grips with, is this. Can God do the things he said he would do in his word? That question puts the focus where it belongs. And another way of phrasing that question in line with our series theme would be, does God have the power to do the things he said he would do? Friends, if you answered yes, you're a big godder. And if you have some doubts or are not sure, then you're a little godder. So let's think, how does the book of Acts portray the apostles and disciples of Jesus as big godders or as little godders? Well, let's find out together, okay? Today we'll explore Acts chapter 5, and before we do, I'd like to share a story about a family driving home from church one Sunday. Their little daughter said, Mommy, the sermon confused me this morning. So Mommy replied, How's that, honey? The little girl then continued, Well, the minister said God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Mom answers, Yes, dear, that's true. And he also said God lives in us. Is that true too, Mommy? Mom replied with a resounding, Yes! Her little daughter then asked, Well, if God is bigger than us, and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, right? Well, friends, let's see just how God shows through in Acts chapter 5, 12 through 42, today's portion. And we'll see both negative and positive reactions to miracles performed by the apostles. The opening five verses set the stage for us. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, verse 12 should jog our memories, because one of the two key words we're watching out for is there, signs. And the other word we're keeping an eye out for is power. Signs and power are interrelated. In fact, three key words used periodically in various combinations in Acts are significant. Power, signs, and wonders. The first mention being Acts 2.22 during Peter's first sermon. There, Peter said, 
Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited or attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. These three terms succinctly summarize Jesus' earthly ministry, his ministry of miracles, as the Gospels outline for us. It'll be very helpful to briefly expand on these three terms to understand their interrelationship and purpose. The first term, miracles, actually a translation of the word power, emphasizes the nature or essence of the actions. In other words, they were powerful actions displaying supernatural power. The second term, wonders, calls attention to the effect produced on the viewers or onlookers. Those witnessing these miracles were struck with amazement and wonder. And the third term, signs, underscores the purpose and significance of these miraculous acts. In other words, they were signs of divine power that signified a spiritual truth. Signs and power have a special connection in the sense that signs link the action of the one performing the miracle to their connection with a higher spiritual power, a power that is intended to communicate that this power does not come from the individual alone. Recall, friends, the last time I said, Christianity is not moral platitudes, lofty intentions, and noble thoughts. The fundamental characteristic of God's kingdom is power. Well, we'll see in Acts chapter 5 that this power is already in a battle with opposing forces, both human and demonic. It crops up unassumingly in verse 16. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. Now, friends, it's important that as we trace the occurrences of power in Acts, we don't miss the power struggles occurring at the same time. These power struggles show up in both the human realm and in the spirit realm, in other words, the demonic realm. Unclean spirits or impure spirits in verse 16 represent the nemesis or the opposite condition that the Holy Spirit produces. The Holy Spirit produces cleanness and purity. We see this in both Testaments. In Psalm 51, David says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist says one of the ministries of Jesus is to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, signifying, I believe, the fire of cleansing or purifying. John, in his first letter, says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it interesting, friends, that the unregenerate world, under the deluding influences of unclean and impure spirits, promotes uncleanness, impurity, immorality, and unscrupulous behaviors? The enemy's unclean forces are powerful, but they're not 
all-powerful. We have the affirmations of Scripture, friends, like Second Corinthians 10.4. We fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God or are divinely powerful that can destroy the enemy's strong places, like Ephesians 6.10-13, which includes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And might here is the word power with a prefix that makes it empowered. In other words, be empowered in the Lord. And for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And powers here is a different word, which is important to know. Some Christians think that God and Satan are equal and opposite powers, but this is incorrect. The word for power here is the Greek word exousia, which indicates delegated power. There's a big difference between inherent power, which God has, and delegated power, which Satan has. Satan's power is on a leash and under God's complete control. The same challenging questions that are going to follow us around as we journey through Acts will take on slightly different shades of meaning, like, do we honestly believe at the very core of our being that we have these weapons at our disposal? Do we appropriate this power from God so we can destroy the enemy's strong places? Well, friends, as the early church expands and moves forward, the power struggle will continue, and the human realm's power grab rears its ugly head in 517. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. The spiritual tug-of-war continues in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. This spiritual ping-pong game goes on until the Jewish religious leaders again call the apostles on the carpet and remind them of their strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name. And friends, would we have the courage to reply as Peter and the others did? In verse 29, they stand up to the leaders and say, We must obey God rather than men. Now, this puts the religious leaders in a precarious position. They became agitated with the apostles and Christ followers, not because of their so-called noble desire to protect the law of Moses, but rather because they were the religious power brokers of Moses' teaching. Can you see what's happening here, friends? As the sect of the Christians spreads, the religious power base of the leaders begins shrinking. In other words, the Jewish leaders begin losing control over the people, the very people they ruled when it came to enforcing the Mosaic Law and all of its nitty-gritty details and obligations. Additionally, it's possible that their jealousy may be rooted in their theological leanings. We don't often hear about the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but their theological differences actually help us understand why the Sadducees in particular were agitated. 
You see, the first century Pharisees represented the religious conservatives. They were more orthodox. Conversely, the Sadducees represented the religious liberals. Their beliefs actually bordered on heresy. They denied the authority of tradition and were suspicious of all revelation later than the Mosaic law. Secondly, they denied the Jewish doctrine of resurrection suggested by Job and the Psalms, which was brought forward into New Testament times by Jesus' dialogue with Martha regarding Lazarus' death. Friends, you remember that conversation, right? After Jesus told Martha her brother would rise again, she replies, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And what's more, the Sadducees didn't believe in the existence of angels or spirits. Politically and financially, they were wealthy. They were the aristocracy, so to speak. And the first century, they controlled the priesthood and the temple. The high priests and the most powerful members of the priesthood were primarily Sadducees. Finally, Jesus had to tell the Sadducees twice that they were mistaken and that they did not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. So, friends, no wonder it's the Sadducees that were filled with jealousy and who push back in today's story in Acts 5. They're attempting to exercise their own political and religious power against this move of God and the Holy Spirit that they can't see due to their spiritual blindness. The only one with some spiritual sensibilities turns out to be Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, yet part of the Sanhedrin, who said, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. In the present case, I advise you to leave them alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So we see, friends, that opposition arises both from the human realm and from the demonic realm. Power struggles are unavoidable when kingdoms are in conflict. I said earlier that the fundamental characteristic of God's kingdom is power. God, as the author of the church through his son Jesus, has unleashed a unique power to accomplish his plan. As Acts unfolds, we see this power at work, channeled through the early apostles and disciples, servants of Jesus. So opposition to Jesus' servants is tantamount to opposition to Jesus himself. So, friends, in the end, resistance is futile. Remember Saul's conversion coming up in Acts 9? Jesus interrupted him on the Damascus road, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Friends, let's thank God that he controls the church and its growth. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul remarks, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God makes it grow. Humans and human agencies may battle against the church, but in so doing, they're really battling against God. They're destined to lose because resistance is futile. Humans may lock the doors on the gospel's progress, but God will open them. Jesus said to the Philadelphia church in Revelation 3-7, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. 
in accordance with God's plan of redemption and salvation, no one or no thing can circumvent or outwit the forward movement of the gospel because resistance is futile. Now, friends, I borrowed today's title from the Star Trek Next Generation saga. An alien race became the archenemy of the Federation, their nemesis, if you will. This alien race was called the Borg because they were a hybrid between human and robot. Borg was an abbreviation of cyborg, and the Borg's mission was to assimilate all other races by adding the biological and technological distinctives of other races to their own by force. Well, on the Starship Enterprise's first encounter with the Borg, they were told, resistance is futile. In other words, they had no chance of stopping the Borg from carrying out their mission. Similarly, the apostles and Christ followers were not ashamed of the gospel, for it was the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believed. And resisting the power of God was futile. Any attempts to destroy the movement would prove to be futile. The apostles also knew that the call to proclaim this gospel was a call to proactive and provocative boldness. Notice, friends, there's no escape to a safe house. We're always on the offensive, returning to the fray of the battle, wherever it's found. In the case of the first century apostles and Christ followers, it was battling against the power base of the temple and the Jewish religious leaders' stranglehold on the law. And it included battling against the spiritual forces that made up Satan's regiments, the demons. You see, friends, a shift of religious power was underway in Jerusalem. This shift of power pointed to a missionary motive on the part of the disciples and not a political motive. This is corroborated in Acts 5, 29 through 32, when Peter and the others courageously stood up to the Jewish religious leaders and said, We must obey God rather than men, meaning the men of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious and political authorities. After saying that, Peter boldly begins preaching the gospel to them. Friends, remember, the book of Acts was initially written to a man named Theophilus, and I believe Luke's underlying reason for writing to him was a missionary motive. I believe that Luke was being especially careful to reassure Theophilus, likely a high-position Roman, that Christians were not a subversive political threat to the Roman Empire, but that the power being wielded by the apostles and early disciples was a power from on high to be Jesus' witnesses, first in Jerusalem and eventually to the ends of the earth. Friends, Acts 1.8 serves as a template for us to make a practical application. We each have our own Jerusalem, people closest to us, our own Judea, perhaps our neighbors, our own Samaria, perhaps co-workers or schoolmates, and our own ends of the earth, perhaps people we bump into in the grocery store or sports venues or wherever we recreate. Well, today I'll close by challenging us again with some more sobering questions. One, do we honestly believe at the core of our being that we have spiritual weapons at our disposal? What prevents us from utilizing them to their full potential? Two, do we appropriate this power from God so we can destroy the enemy's strong places? Is Acts 1-8 a present reality for us? 
And if not, why? Three, are we actively daily drawing from the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in us? What personal disciplines may help us accomplish this? And four, are we asking the Lord to stage divine opportunities so we can manifest his power in the proclamation of the gospel? What may prevent us from asking for this power? Acts 5.42 closes today's portion with the believers never stopping teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Friends, I realize these are convicting questions, but it's time we stop playing church and join God in his work of redeeming our broken and sinful world. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding the conclusion of our last series. Awesome presentation. I enjoy your clarity and appreciate your diligence. Well, thanks for those encouraging words. And remember, friends, all podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And if a word from the word is blessing you, please join the support team. Just ask me for the details. It's people like you that keep this listener-supported program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. <laughs>